I'm Adam McGee. And I'm Andrew Snyder. And you're listening to Captured on Celluloid. Last week we wrapped up with the year 2020 for quite some time. Maybe we'll revisit it in some way. Years down the line, Andrew, if we're somehow still doing this years down the line. But we finally moved on. And so this year it seemed apt to dive into a 2021 movie and one of the the first movies of the year that's really landed with us that is shiva baby the feature directorial debut of emma seligman i think it's really great to like support females particularly um female entrepreneurs cool in the future <laughs> great yeah. awesome danielle don't danielle please don't more is here and our daughter stephanie jessica whatever you should really talk to her you know no it's just a job Max worked for your father years ago. Really? Just try to behave yourself today. I'm not gonna blow him in the bathroom. Why do you keep looking over there? Hi, I'm Kim Beckett. I don't think she's pretty. Malibu Barbie is not pretty. I mean, she's just like basic. You are such a good kid. Are you on trucks? No, just kidding. <laughs> Is she okay? I already have a plan and a path, so. So you just study and uh, don't eat and go out with your beautiful friends. Is that it? Is that your life? Yeah. Oh. Yes, that's my life. Wow, lucky you. Mom, 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 mom. Who died? First, Andrew, welcome. How are you? Glad to be here. Oh, sorry. I'm a little rusty, apparently. I'm glad to be here. Like you said, we wrapped up 2020 uh, last episode, and we know that's always a really a really difficult time for me because I have to pile a lot onto my plate. It's like Thanksgiving meal, and I have to eat the greens and the sweets and the, the main course. 2021, I'm not off to the best start, but I've got <laughs> You know, I've watched Shiva Baby. I've watched uh, a few other 2020, a few, 2021 a few? Uh When did Barb and Star go to Vista, Vista Del Mar come out? 2021. And then in and of itself. So that's three. Okay. We're, on, <laughs> we're, we're cooking. Cooking with gas. In in my 2021 fervor, I, I plan to make getting myself caught up incrementally a project for the whole year, not just for a few months. It may come at the expense of my Marvel journey. Whoa. We'll see how that goes. I I mean, I don't know if I really have objections to that, but we can't make promises and then not deliver. So as long as we can work Andrew's Marvel corner corner into uh, each episode of the podcast, I just go three minutes on a movie from 2011. Then, you know, I'm fine with it. 
But that being said, all of that in the past, I'm ready for 2021 and all that it has to bring, even though the year is five months old. Yeah, it is just crazy. It doesn't feel like it because really what's the difference? But um, it is, we're, in, we're into May and it's also, it's particularly weird because of the way the movie calendar worked out and the award season stretching into this year that there is this very kind of unique spot of it feeling like it's the start of a movie year only in the past kind of couple of months past few weeks and it's gonna be a very busy and kind of shortened movie season because theaters i know in your part of the world are already opening back up there's signs of that on the horizon in on this side of the Atlantic ocean and there's just an ungodly amount of like high profile movies that are gonna make their way out into the world this year so we're in for a busy year andrew you're gonna stay on top of it i more so than last year i think there could be more important movies but i've every faith that i can you know peer pressure you into doing that and that that starts with something like shiva baby which we're getting ahead of the game here it's the kind of film that i feel like on the list I would have just given you for a kind of Andrew's crash course in 2020, this is the kind of film that might have been in the general mix. I'm like, you should probably see this, see how you react to it. So how do you feel about us kicking off our 2021 movie conversation by talking about this particular film? I really think we're starting in a high place. I don't know if we'll feel that way when we get to the end of 2021, just because of everything that has to come after it. I mean, I was I don't want to say I was blown away because this is a very contained and quote unquote small movie, but I really, really enjoyed it and of the of the three movies <laughs> that I've seen with twenty twenty one release dates, it would come out on top of that list. And as you know, I really loved another one of the movies that we talked about in and of itself. So yeah, high marks on Shiva Baby for me, and I think it's I don't know. It's it's I don't want to say it's the the perfect movie to talk about as we kick off 2021, but there is something about that self-contained nature of it that uh and especially like the small setting aspect of it and then the claustrophobia that make it a very interesting watch in uh as we're coming out of COVID, not all the way there have been spent a year not being around pe- uh, people that can suffocate us. And this uh, this is a very interesting movie to kick things off with. And I think I think the biggest thing I, I took away about this is that it's something that is clearly coming from someone with a specific voice and a unique perspective on what it means to be Jewish or what it means to be bisexual or what it means to be young young i think uh, those other things are right there and obviously this is it's going to depend on perspective what you see but i i think something we'll talk about is i love the specificity of this movie and that certainly applies to its its perspective on being jewish and on being bisexual and on being young like that's it's something that's there that you don't see very often and maybe it's because the director was 24 years old when this film was made so that that probably helps enough from i guess as i was watching it the main 
thing that I was feeling is that this isn't necessarily an environment or a life situation that relates to me, but I understand the anxiety and I'm also imagining somewhere out there watching that watching it that really sees themselves or their experience on screen and it is because of that specificity but I don't know it's like we're led into a world or in my case I'm led into a world I don't really know much about I don't know much about shivas or sugar babying but it was very enlightening and a very entertaining story that was told in a way that we've probably seen done before in terms of uh kind of taking i don't know elements of a horror genre and applying and applying them to environment or behavior or like things of that nature but just wrapping it up in a completely different package and unlike anything that i've seen before save one thing that's being kind of thrown out there when people are trying to make loose comparisons to what shiva baby reminds them of yeah let me let me just give the literal the basically what's like a logline from wikipedia because it will give a nice, snappy, concise, just, if you don't know anything about this movie, here's what you're in for. The film stars Rachel Sennett as Danielle, a directionless young bisexual Jewish woman who attends a shiva with her family. Other attendees include her successful ex-girlfriend Maya and her sugar daddy Max with his wife Kim and her screaming baby. That's the movie. Um, It is contained virtually to one setting. You know, it's almost exclusively. We start in a different place, but very briefly, it's almost entirely a one-setting movie. And in in starting off our kind of 2021 movie talk and talking about this, one, I'm really happy to do it because I think it gives us the chance to champion something, which is always fun and can lead people to a movie they may not find otherwise. Um, that's kind of how like I came across this. It's a, it's a debut movie, so it's not like it was on my radar. It's not like even someone like Rachel Sennett, who's the, the lead in the film, was on my radar. So I I wouldn't have really come across this film if it wasn't for the festival buzz and then kind of just in the immediate run-up to it being released. The buzz from critics and, I guess, people like on film Twitter, on Letterboxd, who are really in the know. Um, but that's not necessarily going to be everyone that's listening. It might be some of the people listening. And for everyone else, they probably haven't heard of this movie before and may not hear of it otherwise if it wasn't for the fact that we're speaking about it. So I love when we get the chance to do this, whether it's about a filmmaker, whether it's about a movie. Um, and, you know, it can happen sometimes where we're finishing up an episode and it's like, what will we talk about next week? It's like, this thing is out or... Um, people are going to be talking about this and we'll try out a movie that's a new release, a new-ish release. This isn't an example of that. This is something that we both really, really strongly and genuinely responded to. I watched it. I said, this is really great. I said it to you multiple times, I remember, um, while and after watching it. And you, you follow through and you watch it soon after. So this is coming as kind of a genuine... Um, kind of fully enthusiastic recommendation of something that we didn't just say, oh, we'll try this out and we'll talk about it. We knew going in to uh, this particular episode and the process of this episode, this was something we were on board with. And you've given a nice kind of introduction to some of the elements. It's 
it's the kind of movie that I even feel used to see kind of indies like this a lot more often just a few years ago. Just these really sharp-witted, like razor-sharp comedies. Um, But it's doing a lot more than that too. There's clearly a lot more there. You're right. There's an obvious kind of emergence of a very specific voice, um, both kind of a, a written voice and what comes true in the script and in the dialogue. This was also written by Emma Seligman, but then a directorial voice in terms of some of the stylistic decisions that are made, uh, the pretty clear influences that the film draws from in some cases too, and how all of that comes together. It's just, it's, it's the best kind of surprise when you come across a movie like this it works as well as it does it's really kind of sharp pointed you get in you get out and yet you're still thinking about it for quite a while after it finishes and just how it managed to be exactly what it was you mentioned the comedy and you mentioned horror and i think this is a good place to start because this is a comedy movie but Emma Seligman has very astutely recognized, I guess, just the, the connections that exist between those two genres in the way that they provoke reactions from the audience. They're really designed to kind of burrow their way into an audience. And we essentially here have a film that is a comedy in... You know, it's a, for all intents and purposes, it's a comedy in every way you'd imagine a comedy being. But it's loaded with stressful situations, with anxiety, and with that, the camera, the score, all combined to give these touches that are very much evocative of horror cinema and make it into something very different. This is something that is not entirely new. I mean, we very notably saw some of this in Uncut Gems just a couple of years ago and it's certainly a staple of the Safties and that film in particular has been mentioned quite a lot in reviews since this movie came out um, and I've even heard Emma Seligman say you know when she saw that this thing this movie yeah it would already have wrapped um, production but when she saw that she was like yes that's that's the energy that's this, the same kind of energy I'm looking for and it really works and we talked a bit about comedy last week with some of the things on our list and we continue to end up circling back to my feelings about comedy. But I just wish there were more risks taken, more kind of taught going into, okay, yeah, this is funny. It's a comedy. But what else can we do? What can we do to kind of punch this up? How can we give it some kind of real verve and style? And Shiva Baby does that in a really special way. I mean, for you, did it remind you of anything or can you think of too many things you've seen that managed to do this? So there are two to come to mind and I don't mean for it to be reductive in, in both senses, but people obviously made the uncut gems comparison. That's obviously there. Uh, the scores are different, but I think the score about each of them is what uh, provides that sense of anxiety and uncut gems it's obviously a lot of what's happening with the plot because the stakes are much higher than what's happening in shiva baby so from that standpoint it reminds me of uncut gems uh from a a specific a, a voice from a 
a woman, a specific voice about her story and how she's choosing to live her life and that sort of thing. It reminded me a little bit of Lady Bird, actually, um, just in a in a different way. Um, so I'm not calling it a Lady Bird uncut gym <laughs> hybrid, but as I was watching it, that those were two that they kind of stuck out to me. Um, I think the the risk taken with the plot and exactly what we're dealing with do provide a lot of the humor because it's basically just about embracing as a viewer, the awkwardness and the anxiousness of the situation. And obviously they do that with the score, the, the camera where we kind of get the fishbowl view of everyone around. Um, why am I blanking on her name? Danielle, as she's trying to avoid all of these worlds colliding, George Costanza in Seinfeld, called uh his relationship with his girlfriend world and his relationship with his friends anytime they're together as worlds colliding for her there's a lot of worlds colliding going on here and she wants to avoid that as much as possible and that's not going to work here so i think that's where a lot of the humor comes from and that there is risk taking in the (laughs) uh, telling a story about uh a young woman who's at a shiva with her ex-girlfriend and her sugar daddy and her parents and they all know each other and it's this just like really small community of people that all know each other for a number of years and it's just a bowl of intensity and a lot of people might not find that funny i found it hilarious i found the tension building and the this is almost gonna blow up here and this is almost gonna blow up there very entertaining and very funny one thing that i consciously did though with this with this movie is i did not recommend this movie to anyone that i recommended uncut gems to that didn't like it oh, okay. uh, but they don't get to have this movie sure. because uh they're not gonna they, if they didn't like that then this doesn't have adam sandler too you know there's there's a certain crossover maybe that serves this film better in terms of an approval rating with an audience you know uh, no one's coming into it thinking it's one thing to another i wonder how much for people uncut gems doesn't work that they hear, oh, people are saying it's really funny, and it's got Adam Sandler, and then they sit through that, and it's like, whoa. But it, it, as much, yeah, it, that's a good point. And as much as I can recognize other films in Shiva Baby, I think the the one thing that keeps coming through is it, it's its own thing entirely, mm-hmm. uh, and it's it's better for that. You you talked earlier about um, just how you're dropped in and then you're out and it's a very tidy film. But for some reason, the 77 minutes runtime still feel completely whole and rich. And like the full story of this afternoon was told and walking that tightrope between we're here too long and we're here too little is, is pretty incredible. I think, um, yeah, it's just, it's, it's really its own thing. And to your point, getting to kind of get through the award season, nonsense and talk about all the things that we quote unquote need to talk about it's nice to to have this coming through to 2021 and be the thing that you know this exists and you should watch this you're gonna have time to watch it now as we ramp up for the summer that's coming and uh i mean this is one of the the higher notes of the year to start and it's i mean it's it's worth checking out Okay, let's give some background before we kind of dive in a little deeper. So, uh, Emma Selgman studied film at MIU's Tisch School of Arts. And while she was there, 
prior to leaving there for her thesis film, she made a short called Shiva Baby, uh, which this was then adapted into a feature. Um, in interviews I've read and heard her give, she speaks about she was determined, and this is kind of, you know, the classic advice for someone trying to get a first feature off the ground to make something in a world that you're just completely familiar with, you're at home with. Um, and she took that advice and kind of channeled it all into what Shiva Baby is. So there's obviously the Jewish family angle to it, which is something that she said she'd always felt whenever she started making movies, it would be at the heart of it because it just kind of, it was just there, easy, accessible at the tip of her tongue. Then you have the sugaring element of it, which she has spoken about her and her friends. This is a real life experience around them. I'm not saying this is a, you know, this is a docu-drama uh, kind of movie or this is purely autobiographical. But seemingly, this is not something that I know of in my part of the world. Maybe it happens and I just don't know about it. Um, but around the circles she was in at NYU, it was something that was quite common. And it was something that both she and her friends at times had kind of dipped their toe in. And... I have to say, it's one thing to be able to say, oh, I've got this interesting world or this interesting idea, and I've got this interesting idea. Meshing the two of them when they are exactly what they are in this case is a different matter altogether. And it's, you know, it's pretty high risk. This could go badly wrong, and it's too her utmost credit that it doesn't that there's such a tight handle on all of that and it works so brilliantly well and really that you know a movie that's exploring Jewish family dynamics and is also exploring you know young female sense of self and the idea of sugaring can do both of those things with one complementing the other Um, in a lot of the scenes when you know Basically, she's encountered by surprise. Um, she's not expecting. I mean, to give a very brief, the movie opens with her with her sugar daddy. That encounter finishes. She has a, a voicemail from her mother reminding her about a family funeral. She goes to attend the funeral. She gets to the funeral. She sees her ex-girlfriend. Doesn't know she's going to be there. They go inside. Then suddenly, Max, her sugar daddy, who we'd seen in the opening scene, He's there. He is, you know, he knows nothing, really, is the reality of it. He thinks he knows about her, but really he knows nothing. He thinks he's funding um, her pursuit of a law degree, where really she's doing some sort of media arts degree kind of thing. Um, and it just all comes together in a really kind of delicate, nuanced way that just builds and builds and builds and builds and builds into something that is pretty like symphonic you know there's you can feel the layers of the movie at work and then it all comes together and it kind of swells and sounds like something completely different and that's that's not easy to do and you don't see it all that often you certainly don't see it from first-time filmmakers very often and you don't see it from filmmakers quite as young as emma Sogman is so that's very very impressive and 
didn't at all make you know me feel bad about myself, Andrew, for not having made something like this at 24 years old. Oh, I definitely shared those feelings, Emma Seligman. Um, as you mentioned, directed and wrote Shiva Baby, and I think that's the writing is one of the key elements that does make blending these two worlds together. And I think that also comes into play with Rachel Sinow and Molly Gordon, who played Danielle and Maya, who uh, Maya is Danielle's ex-girlfriend. One of the awkward triangles, we'll call it, as we get into the funeral, we'll, I'll, I'll divide up the awkwardness in ex-girlfriend, sugar daddy and wife and family slash family friends. That's how I'll divide up the triangles here. And I think one of the things about the writing is that as Maya is kind of making subtle jabs at, at Danielle or, uh, I mean, the chemistry between Molly Gordon and Rachel Sinote is incredible. So that's one of the things that ties together with Seligman's screenplay that makes everything uh, work so well, but just the authenticity in general and the, the conversations that she has with people, her parents, friends that she haven't, hasn't seen in however many years. And it's, it's always the same thing. So being, you know, what are you studying? What are you going to do after you graduate? Oh, you look mm-hmm. so thin. You should go make a plate of food. And it's just, even if I, we're not, I, I want to jump in here. Cause you said something that struck me at the start. And I, I get the obvious reasons why you would have said it, but I was ready to disagree with you then. And I, I don't think you meant it as it might have come across. So you said that like this movie to you, it wasn't something that you could see yourself in, in a kind of, Oh, I relate to that sense. That's obviously true for, for me. I'm not Jewish. I'm not a bisexual 20 mid twenties woman. Um, but, but the third triangle. Yes. Um, the Shiva to me was not all that like different from any funeral experience I've had. Um, not that different from any family gathering experience I had. And honestly, what this movie brought me back to again was, and you've mentioned it a couple of times already in this episode, was the conversations we had when we talked about in and of itself there is something to all of that. So this is where the specificity of the movie boat and it's set up um, being that, you know, the point in life she's at, she's a college student. She's coming to the end of her undergraduate studies. So everyone's like, Oh, what are you going to, you're going to do a postgraduate or what are you? She said, Oh, I've got job interviews. That's coming from all angles. That's coming from her mother, her father who are prompting, Oh, there's this person's going to be here. You know, they work in publishing. You should talk to them. It comes from people who don't know her really, uh, haven't seen her for years. It's like, Oh, what are you doing now? Um, what are your plans? And then it also comes from Max, the sugar daddy who thinks she's one thing, but she's actually another. So he, as they come to interact at the Shiva is kind of piecing that together for himself. That with the setting and with that setting um, of a funeral, it makes, it really captures a sense of, you know, being on display that I, I don't know why it happens, you know, particularly to young people. Maybe that's just, maybe it always happens. And it's just my point of view can only relate to it from being a child up to the age I am now. But do you not do you not relate to that? Have you not had that too? That family gathering thing of you know, you're basically 
you know, the room is working its way around you as such, and you're going to answer the same questions tons of times. You may not like it. It doesn't really matter if you have answers to it. You're going to get asked all these questions. People are going to scrutinize you in a way that really they would never scrutinize themselves or their peers. Oh, yeah. So as often happens during this podcast, Adam, I make one take and then that take evolves when I get to things that I like about the film. I was just looking to clarify, because when you said it, I was like, I I think he's going to agree with me on this part, but I get what you obviously don't relate to. Right, and I guess my wider point was, is taking something uh, that's unfamiliar, blending it with something familiar, makes it universal, even though it's specific, and those are the movies that I, I like the most that we've talked about a bunch. But to your point, like, yes, I... I have been in those situations. I've had those conversations. I was I can picture twice in the same funeral home, if you believe it or not, within a few years of one another. I don't have my dates right now, but standing at the end of the line of my family members, casket at the very front, and just shaking hands with a bunch of people I haven't seen in a while as they say, like, well, we're really gonna miss your grandmother, we're really gonna miss your grandfather. Also, you still at NC State, you're still doing the be- you're still doing the baseball, they would call it when I worked in sports. Uh so yes, that portion of the the script and just those conversations is so beyond spot on that yes, I it hit me where I lived. So to round me back to the original point, uh it is not entirely unfamiliar. <laughs> I think that's one of the things that for me is one of the greatest kind of successes of the movie because the movie is about it's about Danielle trying to find a way to feel comfortable with and define herself um, as opposed to being defined by everyone else around her it's like a quest for her own self-identity it's a classic coming of age movie in that sense albeit it's like a coming of age movie over the space of a very condensed period of time. Another reason I think why that short runtime really works is because it's just like we're we're watching live you know it's in real time we're being brought through it is the feeling once you get beyond the opening scene and i i think just that is a really effective way to drop you in that world i certainly found that again going back to that conversation we had on that previous episode it's very strange when someone is trying to just you know figure out their own life um trying to work out the answers to those questions for themselves and not necessarily being completely content or happy with their answers to have a room full of older people kind of probing them and and these like really kind of big questions that might seem throwaway but they're not just small talk it's it's something more than that it's it's really kind of i don't know i think it's it's such a sharp observation and i think that's one of the things for me when i said early on that like for me how this film gets across a young person's perspective is particularly clear like that's the thing for me that's it's a really kind of sharp observation that i don't think you get a whole lot of in movies about young people because generally movies about young people are people recollecting their youth rather than someone at 24 years of age being able to go and make a movie about kind of the there and now for that. I think one thing that heightens this as well is 
you know, those questions stand alone and the, that sense of identity and figuring out what you're doing and having to answer for what you're doing or who you are is one thing if you're by yourself. And it's another thing if it's against a brother or a cousin or a friend. But she's having a deal with sort of the comparisons between her the and her ex. Right. Her the judgment between her ex-girlfriend who in other people's minds may be on a better path to success going to law school that that sort of thing so it's someone that she still has lingering unresolved feelings for someone that she has great chemistry with and is kind of irritated with at the same time so i think that heightens everything to another degree and it's a nice uh little flourish that elevates things beyond the awkwardness and anxiety that might normally come from those situations and i think Another thing that's interesting that as it ties into Maya is they're having that answer for their present, their past and their future, because they'll constantly kind of reference Maya and Danielle's history as almost like they the family members consider it like a phase or something like that. Mm -hmm. They talk about it in, in those ways as if it wasn't a completely meaningful experience to these people that they're still dealing with today. Uh, and still, uh, still obviously have great affection for one another, and so that's painful. You're having to be like, why aren't you know what's what's after grad school? What's next? Blah 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 blah. And you're kind of competing, but you're also interested in one another still, but you don't want to say that, so you're throwing jabs back and forth with one another. So it really just does a service to the movie to heighten both the tension and and the comedy. Yeah, let, let's talk a little bit about the cast then, because. I think in talking about Rachel Sennett and Molly Gordon there as Danielle and Maya respectively, like I think as you've just kind of hit on, there's an unbelievable kind of simmering chemistry there, both in terms of, you know, just this wave of anger that's below the surface from their first interactions, even when they're kind of being nice to each other, to the various kind of ups and downs they go on over the course of the film. Um, Rachel Sennett, I mean, carries the movie and does so brilliantly and has so much just personality in her movements and the gestures she makes and the looks she gives. She's a real kind of interesting screen presence. And Molly Gordon, someone that I've now seen in a few different movies, and every time I've seen her, I've been like, well, that person's a star. Now, I don't necessarily mean that person's like, you know, a-list going to be in all these blockbusters, but I mean, that person, whatever they do, whatever movies they're in, if she works on TV, whatever it is, anytime that Molly Gordon's going to come on screen, I think people's eye is going to be drawn to her. She can really act and really just has this ability to bounce off of other actors. Um, that was certainly true in Booksmart. And then... Go on. I, you're going to beat me to it. You're done. So. Uh, oh, no, go ahead. Sorry. If it's, no, go I didn't, okay, make your, your point. I didn't think you were going to reference this particular movie, so that's why I was going to bring no, it up. It was, but you, you'll you have more of it to say about it than me. She was also the only good thing about Andrew. You might good not boys. agree with that. But <laughs> good Boys, a comedy movie that I did not like a lot, but uh, that's being very generous. But one of the things that redeemed it was, I was like, oh, that's the person who I had just seen in Booksmart. She's so so good in that movie and better than she has any right to be in that movie. And 
like I think the shenanigans are funnier than you do probably with the kids and you know what they're doing but like Molly Gordon's actually giving a really good performance which I thought was impressive uh in uh in a movie that wasn't so great yeah she's got a she's just got a certain energy to her and it, it so far anytime I've seen it it really really works I think it's just perfect in this movie the energy that she has, uh, sorry to cut across you, for me, and I don't know, it, it's like the one friend that you have that if they ask you to go get drinks when you don't want to, they're going to nonchalantly convince you into doing it, and you're going to, at the end of the night, it's going to be 2 a.m., you're going to be having a good time, but you're going to be like, I have to work tomorrow, how the fuck did Molly do this again? Uh, and that's that's kind of like the low-key, but like great hang energy that she provides, in my opinion. I agree. I agree. Um, beyond then, Rachel Sennett and Molly Gordon, you've got as Danielle's parents, you've got Fred Malamed, one of my absolute favorite character actors, um, best known as, well, best known to me as Cy Abelman from A Serious Man. There's some connective tissue, and I, I have also heard. Emma Seligman acknowledged like there there is an, a dash of Cohen's in this movie, but I think you can actually particularly find it in some of the kind of the interactions that are in a serious man. You could find it. it. It maybe never quite reaches the absurdity of that movie in some ways, um, but there is definitely some connective tissue. And Fred Malamed, anytime he's on screen, is just an absolute joy. Uh, Polly Draper as her mother is fantastic in this movie. I actually, I was, as you know, as I said earlier, I, I was watching Steven Soderbergh's side effects earlier today, and Polly Draper plays uh, Rooney Mara's boss in that movie. I was like, oh, that's a very strange coincidence. Um, really, really great kind of anchoring performance, though, in Shiva Baby from her, too. And, like, the movie, without ever feeling like it's so brief too but without ever feeling like it's taking you off on a tangent it really effectively like explores the mother-daughter relationship and the dynamics between danielle and her mother in the movie and you get multiple moments where basically you get these sidebars between rachel Sennett and polly draper um that are letting us into danielle's state of mind and really kind of giving us, I guess, a fuller sense of her character and um, maybe a greater sense of her arc like from before the camera started rolling for us in terms of the movie itself as well. That really, really works and is important. And then Sugar Daddy himself, Max, is played by Danny DeFerrari with his wife played by Diana Agron. Both really good performances too. Um, I don't think it was a bad performance in this movie. And even then, you've got people like um, Jackie Hoffman. That's what I was looking for. Um, you've got these kind of character actors who just show up and you're like, oh, I've seen that person before. And they have these just kind of small scenes or you'll hear their voice or you'll see them in the background of a scene. And it really ties the whole movie together in a very impressive way. Just a great ensemble. And for a movie made on like, nothing budget i think it was two hundred and twenty-five thousand dollars. yes two hundred and twenty-five thousand dollars. um to get the quality the caliber of actors that emma seligman got was a real real achievement and the movie certainly benefits from that 
let's talk about some of the other influence, really just to kind of briefly mention them. Cassavetti's movies are kind of a driving and one of the most notable. I think Opening Night was the film that Emma Sogman seems to be kind of most frequently referring to as the the thing that unlocked this movie for her and that she saw and that sent her down kind of a a, a deeper, a larger rabbit hole of, okay, what are the other kind of set in one day movies that can explore, you know, one setting or very kind of limited settings, character psyche, and what can you do in telling that? Um, Cretia, a film that you haven't seen, I don't think. I've recommended it to you multiple times, so I'm going to guess you haven't seen it. Yeah, that's a good guess. Also, with the John Cassavetes, I have to go full Michael Scott uh, when the waitress asked him if he'd read Lee Iacocca's biography. Read it. I own it. But no, I have not read it, and I have a Cassavetes box set, and I haven't opened it yet. So You have the Cassavetes box set? I do, yes. Wow, we're going to have to talk about that off air. Yeah, it's um, wasted on me, right? <laughs> That's yeah. Um, Trey Edward Schultz, Cretia, a movie that very similar runtime, um, definitely captures the terror of this film and the family dynamics. You know, also without maybe quite as much of the lift of the humor, but a really good. I'd love to see those two movies back to back. I would come out like an anxious wreck i don't think anyone could come out of those two movies any other way but a really really good movie we've mentioned the cones we've mentioned the safties there's another influence i think and we've mentioned cassavetti so this feeds into this um rosemary's baby rosemary's baby i can i can see you know there's there's two sequences in the movie and both kind of make Danielle snap where everyone starts singing the song about the baby and the baby's like in one of them the baby's like kind of being bounced and is like crying in the background and they're huddled around the baby in a way that is very just to me straight away I was like that's that's very Rosemary's baby uh, but it's also at the point in the movie where the cinematography moves away from oh this is an indie comedy and does get into the realm of you know, something a bit more sinister and feverish and starts to look like a horror. Um, Maria Russia was the, the cinematographer and there's some pretty interesting choices made in this movie. I mean, it's designed to feel very claustrophobic and I think that that feeling comes across, but it does it in a way that's a little bit unusual in that it's shot with uh, an anamorphic lens as a 2.35 to 1 aspect ratio so it's not like a boxy academy ratio which is kind of i don't know i feel like that's an obvious thing to do to be like i want to make this really claustrophobic what will i do i'll tighten the frame i'll make a small kind of square like frame and um, where everything the walls are closing in this movie does the opposite and it does it to actually fill the frame with people I think it's really clever and it works really well. So it's it's widened out the frame to kind of pack it with people. And even in a lot of the kind of, you know, just shot reverse shot kind of editing of conversations, when I guess in a kind of a metaphorical sense, Danielle has her back kind of pushed up against the corner. 
we are getting kind of framing that is showing her kind of outnumbered, that is showing her almost cornered. It's kind of a lot of, there's a lot of very simple choices that work very well, but I, I did think the the anamorphic lens and the aspect ratio was kind of counterintuitive in some ways, but I thought it worked really well. And the movie, the movie looks very good and does some interesting things. Again, just more than you expect to see from a comedy. Definitely more than you expect to see, though, from something made at this kind of level um, as as a really kind of low-budget indie comedy. So that really worked well. I was very impressed with it. I, I think one thing we haven't mentioned yet that, well, we've probably briefly touched on, but Ariel Marx's score, you know, is up there with being the MVP of this movie. Like, if you just didn't have that score, if you put a completely different score on it, it just doesn't work. It's the jagged strings that make this movie what it is, that make it as interesting as it is, and that tie everything else together. It's not like the direction, the writing, the performances aren't all great and don't play their part in it, but it really feels like that score and that decision to be like, let's put a horror score on this, is what just, it's the glue that binds the movie together and makes it something that, isn't forgettable and i think makes an impact while you watch it but also i don't know again we're often in this situation i'd already recommended it to you so maybe you had some awareness or you have some expectations built up i had minimal expectations going into it that's something that grabbed my attention right away like oh this is a choice this is interesting this is different yeah that's definitely what what grabbed my attention right away the I I wanted to avoid making the uncut gems comparison because the scores are different, but um, it definitely does give you that that horror vibe, and not necessarily horror in terms of terror, obviously. But as someone that struggles with severe anxiety, and uh, I think it does a better job of masking it than Danielle does in this film. The score definitely makes me. F- feel like my skin is crawling as i'm watching her through these uh increasingly more nerve-wracking scenarios i mean the especially as as things almost come to like a crash or a head when she gets coffee spilled on her like it was just uh i mean uh anyone that's had coffee spilled on them will will uh empathize when when they watch this particular scene going back to your point about uh the rosemary's baby that and this this is how I obviously am able to translate what I see from film to film mm-hmm. is I thought about memeing one of the scenes from Rosemary's Baby when they were singing the song uh, to her about uh, when they said they sang to her when she was a child and I she can't was like imagining exact lyrics but yeah it's 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 about like rocking a baby yeah and. Uh, very cringe very uncomfortable very effective (laughs) and uh if emma seligman don't take offense that i thought about memeing your movie it means she did an amazing job that i thought about rosemary's baby before adam had to tell me because normally that's how these things work adam has to tell, tell me what's happening uh in terms of uh you know uh cart shot adam as as we talked about last week didn't see any car shots in here. No, think. that that was the only thing I would. That would that be my one, one nitpick of the film. Uh, would be the car shots. But yeah, the the score is if 
if you're saying Andrew, what is one takeaway you have from the film and that made it as impactful as it was? I mean, obviously doing that is a stupid exercise, but it would be the score. Yeah, it it definitely works. And listen, I don't think Emma Seligman would be offended by you memeing the movie. Like that's young filmmaker, I think, would understand that's kind of what movie success is now. Is your movie memeable? And memeing it with one of the greatest films yeah, of all time. Memeing it with an all-time great movie would certainly certainly stand as a compliment. Um, any other thoughts? I mean, I'm quite happy where we are on this because I don't want to like go beat by beat through the plot because I think fewer people will likely have seen this at the time of listening to it than maybe some of our other episodes. So I'm quite happy to kind of leave it pretty vague for people to jump in. But was there anything else we haven't touched on the you wanted to talk about no i think i think we've covered a lot of ground i mean obviously i'm on molly gordon island i'm excited to see her in this uh adam mckay lakers celtics thing whatever that ends up being i i'm a little i have some trepidation of for what that project's going to be as you're a very whole. excited for that project you keep talking about it <laughs> i know i don't know man like as a as someone that wished he was alive to see Larry versus Magic, it's just hitting me in a sweet spot, and and she's in it, so I stand. Uh, but this is a film that now I I'm not going to do what I did last time and see a movie in August or whenever I saw it and say that any kind of award. Are you, are you saying list... these are all best best no, actors, no, no. best supporting? No, 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 no. But that being said. And now it might be a strong year because everything that's held back. But I have a feel that I have a feeling that when we're doing the exercise we did last week and we're and we're coming back to what did we like this year? I think it's going to be something that we at least consider. And that's something that's I mean, that's a strong thing to say, considering how weird the release schedule is going to be this year. I mean, it's it's something that's sat with me. I didn't get a chance to rewatch it. I enjoyed it when I saw it. And. It, it's not something that's faded from my memory. I think all the elements that we talked about, the just incredible, well-rounded cast. I mean, getting Fred Melamed was incredible, in my opinion, for especially what uh, the budget of this film was on. I, I forgot to mention during the uh, scene about him, is or the uh, section about him, is uh, the one of the, my favorite low-key Fred Melamed performances is in New Girl, where he plays Schmidt, the CFO of Schmidt's uh, company. And somehow when Schmidt's getting married, he just keeps getting invited to the bachelor party and like the wedding party because uh, like he doesn't have enough friends to fill it out. And his performance in a sitcom is like far above everything else is happening. It's hilarious. So the, you know, the well-rounded cast, the score, the, the script, the direction, the stuff you saw said about the, you know, the camera work and all that shit. I don't understand. I think for for this to be Emma Seligman, Emma Seligman's feature debut. I mean, it's incredible, and I'm excited to see what she does in the future. It feels like we've gotten to talk about since we start restarted this podcast about a lot of young filmmakers who are like knocking out of the park with their debut features and she's another one to add to that list and I'm excited to see what she does moving forward. Okay. We've got some big coming. We've got plans. We've got multi-episode plans. Um, I'm basically taking Andrew to school here. This is a filmmaker that I care a lot about 
kind of obsessively care about. Um, that Andrew has barely, barely touched the surface on yet. And we are going to rectify that. Starting next week, we are going to have a three-part series. Um, probably every second episode, we'll we'll dive back in. We'll break it up so there's something in between. So it's not kind of uh, too overwhelming for us or for all of you as listeners. Um, we are going to talk about the films of Terrence Malick. How do you feel about this, Andrew? I feel like this is an education that I need. My Malick experiences, I think, limited to Thin Red Line and Tree of Life. I didn't know you'd yeah. seen the Thin Red Line, so that's good. You've got two. At, a, at, an, at an age where I should not have seen the Thin Red Line, right. so I would love to revisit it as an adult. Um, but this is just an education that I need, and uh, starting from the beginning, especially with where we're going to start, I feel like we're starting at a very high place to, based on what you've said. Yeah, I, I look, I'll, I'll map this out. I have mapped it out. This is something that, one, I just, I was kind of thinking about rewatching. Uh, it's been a while since I'd rewatched kind of all of Malik's movies. Um, and I was thinking of doing it, and I was like, I know Andrew hasn't seen some of these. We've talked about it. I think it could be very, very good content. Malik's filmography and certainly the way that we'll break it up and it kind of naturally breaks up is just like it's it's endlessly fascinating plus plus he may have a movie coming out later this year so this might kind of be a head start on that he has a film about uh, a little known historical figure called Jesus Christ that he's been working on I believe is shot that doesn't mean that it won't be like four five six years in the edit who knows but it could hypothetically come out later this year. So that's always a possibility. I think it's currently going by the way of the wind, although the name has changed multiple times already. But what we are going to do first up next week, we will we'll go from the beginning and we'll do it in chronological order. That won't be the way the whole way true, but we will talk about 1973's Badlands, 1978's Days of Heaven, and after the 20-year hiatus, 1998's The Tin Red Line. Really the first chunk of Malick's career, his 20th century movies. We'll pick up the following week and we'll continue, at least for a moment, going in chronological order. We'll talk about the... Or not the following week, two weeks after that. The second part of our series, The New World, The Tree of Life, Voyage of Time will have to be paired with The Tree of Life, and... I'm going to put a hidden life in there because it is certainly a spiritual partner of those movies. And it wouldn't fit quite so well with the movies that will make up the last part of our Malik series, which is To the Wonder, Night of Cups, and Song to Song. And <laughs> I can't wait for Andrew to watch those movies and for us to get on a podcast and talk about them. Um, but if you haven't, this is a great chance over a number of weeks for you to get to know one of the greatest living filmmakers, one of the all-time great American filmmakers, one of the most interesting filmographies ever. And there really is not a better place to start than with Badlands, Days of Heaven, The Tin Red Line. That is three all-time bona fide classics. So I'm very, very excited. That will be next week's episode. 
I've got I've got it all my Blu-rays ordered and everything. I took the plunge, Andrew. I ordered two to one their Night of Cups, Song to Song. They weren't previously in my collection, but I said, you know what, I need to have them. I'm ready to go. You told me there's a criterion I needed, and that was Tree of Life. Tree of Life. Um Yeah, the reason I said that is the extended cut too. I mean we can we can see how deep we're really gonna get into this. We'll let you watch the first three movies and then make decisions on just how scholarly you wanna get on Malik's movies. I've got the Criterion sale through the uh end of May, so yeah. So listen, there might be some extended cut talk. That's what that sounds like. Um okay, that's all to come. Very excited. Got some other ideas too that you know should be there. I think we'll have some fun stuff coming up. As always, thanks all of you for listening. Make sure you subscribe to us wherever you get your your podcasts. If you want to make sure you don't miss any episodes of Captured and Celluloid, but particularly our upcoming Malik series. You can follow us on Twitter at Captured on Cell. And we'll be back with you again very soon. Thanks again for listening. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks, Adam. <laughs>